Zivie Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zivieowens.com for updates on podcast guests and lots of live events. Today's episode has been sponsored by But That's Another Story with host Will Schwalbe. Will is actually an author on my podcast because he has written two fantastic books called The End of Your Life Book Club and Books for Living. He loves asking people what books they're reading and finds fantastic answers. And so dedicated a whole podcast to finding out what notable figures, including authors and celebrities, are reading. He's had guests like Kevin Kwan, Melinda Gates, Peter Hedges, and Jodie Foster, and has had many guests that I've also had on this podcast, including Min Jin Lee, Danny Shapiro, Gretchen Rubin, Michael Frank, and Pamela Paul. So you should listen to his episodes and go back and listen to some of my episodes and check out his podcast. It's an insightful show. It's full of moving stories and you'll find even more books to add to your TBR list than I have on this show. So uh, check out But That's Another Story with Will Schwalbe. I'm here today with Andrea Buchanan, who goes by the nickname Andy, who is a New York Times bestselling author, and we're talking about her book, The Beginning of Everything, The Year I Lost My Mind and Found Myself. She's also the author of 10 other books, including The Daring Book for Girls and Mother Shock. Before becoming a full-time writer, Andy was a concert pianist, and she currently lives in Philadelphia with her family. Welcome, Andy. Thanks for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for being here in person, too. This is so great. Yeah, no, my pleasure. (laughs) Your memoir, The Beginning of Everything, The Year I Lost My Mind and Found Myself, P.S., great title. Like, (laughs) how can you not want to read a book with this title? Tell listeners what it's about and what inspired you to write it. It's a book about... A lot of things, but primarily about the year that I experienced a pretty profound health crisis when I had a spontaneous spinal CSF leak, which unbeknownst to me is a thing that can happen. (laughs) CSF, cerebral, wait, um, cerebral spinal fluid. Yeah. Yeah, So I had a flu, I had a high fever, I had a cough and I coughed one day. And then unbeknownst to me, that was enough to make a tear in my dura mater, which is the tough protective membrane that covers the brain and spinal cord. And this tear was large enough for my cerebrospinal fluid to begin leaking out, which is a bad thing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I didn't know that what was that's what was happening. I had a terrible, terrible headache. I thought maybe I just still had a flu, still maybe had a sinus infection. I saw doctors who told me I had migraines or sinusitis. And then eventually, after going to several doctors and, and telling them that I had noticed that I felt better when I laid down and worse when I stood up, somebody connected the dots and said, this sounds to me like a like a CSF leak. But it took me about nine or 10 months to find an actual doctor who knew that I definitely had a spontaneous spinal CSF leak, knew how to treat it, and knew how to fix it. So for, you know, that year, basically, I I was mostly bedridden. I had a headache pretty much 24-7. After a while, even laying down didn't make it feel better. I couldn't read, couldn't write, couldn't watch TV, couldn't remember my kids' birthdays, sometimes their names. I was really, really cognitively compromised. And on top of everything, I was going through a divorce. So it was a big year for me. And at the time, I wasn't really able to think about how any of this felt um, because my brain just, I didn't have the capacity for narrative. I Things just happened and I accepted them and I really didn't have the brain ability to or brain power to to think 
any 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 more deeply than just what was happening on the surface. So in moments of lucidity, after I'd had maybe a steroid injection or a, or a treatment that helped for a little while, I might have thought about how scary it was or worried about what my future would look like. But most of the time, I was just in too much pain and too out of it to really understand. And it was only when I started to feel better that I started to kind of grapple with those questions. And it was about maybe six months after I had my procedure to fix the leak that I first was able to start writing about it again for real, which was difficult, but also a relief because when I was very sick, I wasn't sure that I'd be able to write anything ever again, at least not in a book form. Wow. <laughs> and you do such a great job in the book of mixing a lot of the sciencey explanations. Like, I feel like I learned a lot more about even how the body works. I know because I'm like not, yeah. a, I mean, I haven't taken science in quite some time. <laughs> so you, you wove it in as you were going through this odyssey of figuring out what was wrong with yourself. So if you're only there in the moment trying to figure everything out, how did you go back to write about it in such detail? Because it's almost like you were just, you know, a fly on the wall watching this happen to you. Like, right. how did you, how were you able to I mean, in some ways, that's what I kind of felt like. Like the me that was me was this like tiny, tiny speck that was like a fly on the wall watching everything happen. And so that's kind of when I was trying to figure out how do I write this book and how do I tell this story? That's kind of where I started. Like, I'll just zoom in on these moments and kind of go from there. But I had to do a lot of research on my own life. I had to look at medical notes from doctor's visits. I had to look at the CT and MRI and other procedure results and interpret those. I had to look back on emails I'd sent to my family in moments of lucidity, just kind of giving them updates. I had some text messages I'd saved. I even came across when I was trying to look for clues about what exactly I'd experienced, I even came across some writing I'd tried to do, which was completely nonsensical, and I didn't even remember having done it. So yeah, I had to do a, a bit of investigation. So out of these like breadcrumbs, like I had the dates and times of appointments and, you know, emails maybe to friends and family about the results and some other things that I'd, you know, jotted down at the time, I was able to kind of recreate that journey. But it was, it was tricky. And it, for me, it called into the, into question the, the real, what I think is the real fundamental question of memoir anyway, which is who is telling the story and how much of it is true and what is truth and, and what is the self, you know, who's the I that's doing the storytelling. So I talk about that a lot in the book because it's so interesting to me. And because, you know, my experience was very much about that, that questioning of who am I if I can't think, if I can't use words and I'm a writer, <laughs> who am I? If I'm not there, who am I? What'd you come up with? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, it was very, it was kind of, it was an existential crisis. You know, I kind of realized that I had all along thought that I was the person driving the car and I've been a, a baby in the toddler seat in the back with a pretend steering wheel this whole time. You know, I very much realized it was almost, you know, Buddhists talk about this kind of self and non-self. And I had this amazing experience of really being able to observe the self going on without me. And if I hadn't been, you know, in the midst of a terrifying illness and incredible pain, that might've been like 
a, a crazy intellectual <laughs> revelation, but it just felt discombobulating. It, it felt like groundlessness and, and it wasn't the kind of groundlessness that I could experience sitting on a yoga mat and feeling safe and protected. It was like, this is my life and nothing is what I thought it was. So how does that impact like your day-to-day life and decisions now? Does it? Well, yeah. I mean, it's hard not to come away from an experience like that and not have it linger. I mean, in the very beginning, I felt very raw walking around. I felt like like I'd been, you know, to the moon and mm-hmm. back and like nobody could tell from the outside that I was different. But I felt like everything had been, you know, this has been a world kind of shattering event. And I was also really anxious, well, or not anxious, but conscious of the fact that this could happen again. Like this wasn't my one thing and now nothing bad will ever happen to me. And so that was a little bit, you know, anxiety provoking. And on the other hand, it was also a little bit of a relief, like, well, okay, this has been the worst thing that's ever happened to me and I'm okay now. So another thing will probably happen too. And I'll probably also be okay. Or maybe not. It's not up to me, you know? So kind of, you know, this process of being kind of vigilant about like, you know, worrying about it, but also being able to kind of relinquish this because it's truly out of my hands. You know, I I spend a lot of the book trying to retrace my steps back to the beginning of everything, hence the title, to figure out where was that moment that I could have undone. And I, you know, I had, I, I had for years, even up till this year, I've had, you know, these night terrors where the theme is like, I did, I forgot to do something and now everything is horrible and the world is ending and people I love are dying. And, and it's because I didn't do this one thing that could have saved everybody. And that was kind of the uh, theme that I was <laughs> grappling with when I was ill and in trying to create a narrative around this time, you know, where's that one thing? But there wasn't just one thing. It was the combination of a myriad of things that I could never tease out to one tiny factor that I had any control over. And I mean, I think that's true whether you're grappling with an illness or a life-changing event or even, you know, a happy thing. Like, there isn't the one thing that you have complete control over that can determine whether or not everything's going to be fine. But yeah, I mean, in the immediate aftermath, I was very careful. I didn't want to cough. I didn't want to have a cold. I didn't want to bend or lift or strain. You know, there's no more yoga for me. There's no more headstands. There's no more roller coasters. Nothing that is going to put stress, no weightlifting, nothing that's going to put stress on my dura because I, I don't want this to happen again. And every once in a while, even now, I'll carry groceries up the stairs and think like, is this the moment that I'm going to look back on and think, oh, I shouldn't have done that. But On the other hand, I can't stop living my life. I do have to keep going because what is the other option, (laughs) you know? Wow, that's a lot to sort of carry (laughs) around with you every day. I mean, I also thought it was great in the book. You were a former pianist, Mm -hmm. professional concert pianist. I don't know the right lingo for what (laughs) you are, but gifted pianist professionally, Uh whatever. And you used music in a way to find yourself again and to reignite those sort of neural circuits and get back to where you were before when you were teaching yourself how to play the piano and following your old notes. And tell me about how the piano kind of helped you find yourself again too. Well, you know, one of the, if one of the frustrating things about this disorder in the first place is that there's very little research about what patients' experiences are like in terms of how long they suffer before they are fixed and then how long the fix works <laughs> and how long that holds. And, and there's not any research about kind of what the trajectory is like after you're 
patched up and repaired. There, there's just nothing about like once you're okay, how to get back to baseline. Like it's not like you're sent home from the hospital with a list of things like, oh, here's the kinds of things you can do for somebody who's had a brain injury or a concussion. There's, there's nothing like that. So I was kind of adrift when I was recovering from this, not sure if I was actually okay or how long this patch was going to hold and, or if this was the real fix or if this was just a step towards a real fix. But once I was able to start reading again, I began to read a lot about the experiences of stroke survivors, about the experience of TBI survivors and concussion survivors, and a lot about neuroplasticity. And when I read about the neuroplasticity research about the brain, what they described when in the context of rehabilitating stroke patients was a focus on very small repetitive movements in the case of a stroke patient with a damaged hand or side of the body. And what I read was that these this, this kind of sustained focus practice with very small muscle movements was really integral in creating a kind of plasticity or, or I guess taking advantage of the plasticity of the brain to create these kind of new neural pathways. And that seemed very interesting to me because it reminded me that description of this small muscle movement and focused intent reminded me a lot of practicing piano. And, you know, as somebody who had been practicing piano for 30 years, I thought, well, this might be a way for me to help my brain get better. I mean, definitely the top things they say are to sleep and to, you know, rest and not do anything to overexert yourself. But after those things, I would say that playing the piano was the number one thing that helped my brain get back to where it was. Because, you know, I wasn't able to tolerate sitting very much at first. Sitting brought on a pretty bad headache. Once I had been fixed and my leak was gone, I still had these after effects to deal with. So I thought, you know, I'll sit at the piano with this good piano posture that will maybe help me tolerate sitting a little bit. And I'll do some very basic old exercises that'll make me really have to concentrate and just really like focus on one finger at a time. And so I started out really small, like five, 10 minutes at a time and working up to maybe half an hour at a time. And then I started being able to like go through old repertoire I had and then things that I'd learned more recently. And so it kind of served a dual purpose. It, it not only helped rehabilitate my brain and kind of have my, this, my piano brain training <laughs> exercise, but it also helped me reconnect to myself because I was going through and playing pieces that I played when I was eight, when I was 10, when I was 13, when I was 17 and at the conservatory, when I was, you know, 20 and I was in graduate school, when I was, you know, 26 and doing a Carnegie Hall recital, like the process of going through that repertoire was not just practical, but also an emotional experience as well, because I had really struggled with a sense of, you know, who am I? As I said, you know, who am I if I am out of commission? And being able to go back and revisit these kind of snapshots of who I have been through my whole life really helped me establish a feeling of a continuity of self so that I could see I've always been there, which was very useful. (laughs) (laughs) And you mentioned you were going, and it's obviously a lot in the book, but that you were going through a divorce at the same time. Yes, How did that play into everything? And by the way, I felt like your ex-husband, given that you were going through a divorce and having been through a divorce myself, knowing how that can stir up certain feelings and all the rest, how he was really like helping you quite a bit, especially with all the medical stuff. So I don't know if that was a conscious decision, (laughs) if that was the question mark truth of a memoir Uh or what, but 
I don't know. Tell me a little more about that relationship. Well, one thing that was really important to me when I was writing this book was I did not want to tell other people's. I mean, obviously, I have to tell other people's stories because there's other people in my life and they're not writing this book. I am. But I didn't want to tell other people's stories too much. I didn't want my version of somebody else's story to become the official story of record because I am the only one writing this particular memoir. You know, my ex-husband isn't writing his own that I know of. (laughs) (laughs) So it was very important to me to be fair. And it was important to me that whatever I write not contradict anything that perhaps was the story that my children knew about the end of our marriage. But I will say that, you know, that was something that was important to both of us that we, you know, our primary concern was that the children have a positive experience, that we be as amicable as possible. And so, but of course, even in the best case scenario, it's still really difficult. So I didn't want this to be a book about my terrible divorce (laughs) or my stressful divorce or my whatever divorce. I wanted that to be a part of the story, but I didn't want to focus everything on it. So I really tried to do my best to be fair in how I told the story. And, you know, luckily he was somebody who was very helpful in connecting me with some medical professionals who were then able to connect me to other professionals who actually knew about what I was dealing with. So for that, I was very grateful. It really reiterates how, like, terrifying the medical field can be if you don't have some sort of an advocate. Oh, right. right. I mean, I I was so grateful when he would swoop in and sort of help you when you were floundering. But I'm thinking like, what if she hadn't been married to a doctor? Like what? Right. I mean, that's what's so striking about all. And I've spoken to so many patients or former patients suffering with spinal CSF leak. And it is so difficult to be taken seriously, even even for the patients who are men, but especially for the patients who are women. It's so difficult to be taken seriously, especially if you're talking about pain as a woman. And that's made even more difficult by the fact that there are so few experts in this disorder. So it's kind of a cliche story at this point that, you know, the people that this happened to spend a lot of time being disbelieved and misdiagnosed and have to become advocates for themselves at a time when their brains are so compromised, they can't do anything. And it's a, it's symptomatic of a lot of problems with our healthcare system that patients have this burden put on them at a time when they are not in their right mind or their, their, their right health. Like Mm -hmm. they don't have the energy or the resources or the connections or the luck to be able to, to do this kind of thing all the time. And it was very frustrating. I spent a lot of time (laughs) on very confusing phone calls with insurance companies, just sobbing. (laughs) They should have just like a sobbing hotline. (laughs) They should. Insurance recovery hotline. Or a patient advocates hotline where somebody else can take all the information and bring it to the people who are going to, you know, rather than having. They must have something like that. They should. They must. We'll have to look. (laughs) (laughs) I just wanted to read one passage from your book that kind of stuck with me and I thought was beautiful. You said, I'm not performing yet. I am somewhere in between the chaos and the finish. I am recovering. And so I can start anywhere. I don't need to know where the beginning is. I don't have to determine where it might be. I don't have to choose a precise moment when it all started and when it all went wrong, because in practicing, it doesn't matter. And the more I practice, the more I see that in life, it doesn't matter either. I pick a point and work from there, and that's the work. That's the point. Every day I work a little longer, increase my stamina, nourish my brain, and every day it helps me stop the futile quest for the answers to everything, which of course could never be located in one perfect precise moment. Every day I continue to start where I am because I'm not performing, not yet. 
I'm practicing. Wow, that was amazing. It's like, that's the meaning of life right there. Thank you very much, Andy. (laughs) So tell me a little about that passage. I mean, I know we spoke already about your quest to find the beginning and, you know, but. Well, this was in a, you know, this is from a chapter where I'm talking about the importance of my piano brain rehab and, and the benefits of practice in general. And it's interesting, when I used to teach piano, that was primarily what I was teaching people, whether they were little kids or grownups, what I was teaching them was how to practice. Mm-hmm. Because, we, you know, you don't know how to practice. And so in reminding myself how to practice by going back to this old stuff and, and sitting at the piano and really, really trying to work through this stuff in a, in a really focused way, I was really reminded of the, the work of practice, which has always felt to me like a metaphor for life. And this was pretty on the nose for me, (laughs) like this notion of, you know, when you approach a piece of music, you can play it all the way through from beginning to end. But if you're really going to practice it, you, you should start somewhere in the middle. You should start at a place that's hard for you and work on that first. You should pick a small section and just focus in on that. And then later on, you can extrapolate to like how that matters to the rest of the piece. But in this moment of practice, you're not working on the whole thing. You're just tackling this one small thing and starting where you are or starting with what's hard for you or starting with your least favorite part or, or starting with some place that's all that's tricky. Like that's where I was when I was, you know, suffering with this condition, when I was writing this book, which was... Yeah, I was going to ask you, it sounds like right, you could apply this whole yeah. section to writing. Yeah, yeah. So it was a really useful way for me to think about living in my life where, too, where I also can't start from the beginning and play it all the way through and I have to be where I am and I have to tackle these things that are hard for me and not have answers and you know it's only be able to look back later and say oh that's how it all fits together so this is a reminder to myself as much as a advice to anybody else I think tell me a little more about writing the actual book like how long did it take for you to write this book where did you sit and write it (laughs) like do you Uh, like to write at night or in the morning or just like this was definitely, this was my 11th book, 12th, 11th book. And it was definitely, it was almost like it was my first book. It was the hardest book I've written for sure. Normally I'm a very fast writer. I don't usually have to do many drafts. It just, but that was not the case with this book. <laughs> it was not easy. It was not fun. <laughs> when I first wrote the book proposal, uh, and that was the first big piece of writing I'd done since my injury or my the the CSF leak and I that I think I wrote maybe about nine months after I had the leak fixed and it was so exhausting for my brain and so difficult and I've written a ton of book proposals before but this was like so when I sent it off to my agent and then we got an offer for the book I, I was like oh no <laughs> I thought I was done but now I have to write a book I hadn't hadn't thought this through you know and so then I was very scared because I thought like I could barely just do this you know 30 page proposal how am I going to do this whole book my brain is just not ready for this and so I kind of put everything off for a little while I did a lot of mulling <laughs> I did a lot of like I was still very much like having to spend a lot of my day in bed at that point so I was like you know, I set up my little writing station in bed and I took notes and I did a lot of thinking. And then I eventually decided to do kind of actually what I was talking about in that passage you read, which was to pick a point and zoom in and write about that. And then I'd pick something else and write about that. And then I, I kind of made a like a CSI murder board <laughs> on my wall of all these different points that I wanted to 
write about. And then I clustered those points into bigger post-it notes that were like more organizing concepts. And, and in the beginning, it had to be a very visual process like that, which is not normally how I work. Normally, I just can picture stuff in my head and I'm good to go. But this, I really needed to physically move things around. But the actual writing of it was very difficult. And I checked in with my therapist who I'd seen while I was very ill to kind of talk with her about, you know, just check in and see how I was doing and where I was with the book. And I told her like this, you know, normally when I'm writing and I come up with this kind of resistance, like not the kind of resistance where it's like, oh, maybe I should look into this a little bit more. This is like a question that's begging to be answered, but this kind of like, this is terrible this is not working. The, you know, the kind of these are the kinds of things where if I encountered them in another project, I would say, you know, this project isn't this is this isn't going anywhere. I need to work on something else. But that's not what's happening with this book. It's just everywhere I turn, as I try to write it, it's really, really hard, and I I can't give up on it. But like, I don't know what else to do. And she kind of laughed, and she was like, "Wait, so you're telling me that a book about a time when you like thought you might die <laughs> or never recover your your brain ability <laughs> is difficult to write?" And I was like, "I guess you know when you put it that way." She's you know she had a good point. She was like, "This is this was a tra- a traumatic experience." It is re-traumatizing to write about it. And she's like, frankly, I'd be concerned if you were like, yeah, it's going great. Mm -hmm. But it was, it was a challenge because, you know, here I was trying to take everything that had happened, which had happened for me the first time around outside of narrative and put it into a context and give it narrative, like find a beginning, middle and end, which I just kind of come to (laughs) accept (laughs) does not exist. Um, And so doing that and writing through it and even even picking points and starting here and there was really hard because it was the first time I was experiencing it in a full way where I was thinking about what had happened and the implications and everything. It wasn't just the moment of feeling, being in pain and feeling the experience, but really trying to make a story of it. It was like it was happening all over again. And so it was a, it was a challenge. It was definitely the hardest book I've ever written, but I think it's the book I'm most proud of. How long did it take to write? It felt like it took forever, but I realized when I say this that other writers will be like, excuse me. (laughs) Um, I procrastinated writing it for months and was just kind of mulling about it. And I started writing it in, in, in full force in like May of 2017. And I turned it in, in December, mid December, 2017. So. That does not sound long to me. For me, that felt like a really long time. Wow. But uh, that's amazing. But actually when I look back on it now, it's like, what? You know, just because. I felt like I'd wasted a lot of time agonizing over right. how difficult it was to write. Doesn't mean I it's, I wasn't well, I was doing nothing. You know, it was really really good. And like from the from the introduction on, I think I wrote you like this is the best introduction I've ever read. <laughs> You're like in it, and it's not just the narrative. It's like the emotional mm. reflection and the science and the visuals. I don't know. It was really good. It was really, you should be really proud of it. It was really, really good. Thank you. So. I'm so glad you liked it. Do you have another book coming? Right now, I, I'm i just kind of in the middle of trying to figure out what's next. So I'm mulling. So. Yeah. All right. Which means you'll have a book in like two months. <laughs> oh, I wish. Yeah. <laughs> the mull to production ratio. Right. Productivity <laughs> ratio or something. Do you have any advice to aspiring authors? 
I mean, there's two things I usually tell people, and I definitely had to take my own advice when I was working on this book. One is that the best process is the one that gets your book written. So whatever that is, whether it's a murder board or writing in bed, like I did most of my writing, although I did sit at a cafe and write sometimes too, or writing at a particular time or whatever it is for you that gets the book done, that's the process. And then the other thing I tell people is that each book that you write teaches you how to write it as you go. And that was probably the hardest bit of my own advice to take with this book because what it taught me was that it was not going to be easy and it wasn't going to be a fun process. And that even if I couldn't trust in the moment that what I was writing was any good, I just had to keep going. You know, I think sometimes we can get kind of lost in the feeling of like, ooh, I just wrote something really good, you know, or, or you wrote 3,000 words and you feel great or whatever. But it's writing isn't always like that. You don't always get the high of like, I did it, you know. Sometimes it's not until you're looking back on, you know, the book in a galley form where you're like, oh, wow, this is actually a book. I did it. So, yeah, th- that's, that's, that's my advice. Learn, learn to write the book. Uh, the book will teach you how to write it as you go. And whatever process works best for you is the best process to write it. That's like what people say about the gym, right? Like, <laughs> oh, really? When's the best time to work out? Oh, like, yeah. Whenever, whenever you actually will do it. Yeah. Right? <laughs> like, or like when people say, like, when's the best time to have kids? Like, there's yeah, no good time. You just, you, you do it or you don't, yeah. you know? Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Well, thanks, Andy. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for being here in person. Yeah, and, no, um, thanks for having me. this really great, great book. Thank you. It's really great. You've been listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books with Zibby Owens. Please make sure to sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com to get more updates about episodes like these and also lots of live events. This episode has been sponsored by the podcast, but that's another story with Will Schwalbe. Check it out for insightful stories to find out what notable figures like authors, actresses, and directors have found to be some of the most powerful books in their lives. You can follow me on Instagram at moms don't have time to read books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You can always email me at zibby at zibby owens.com.